0: jump in. God, thank you for this morning, for this chance to be together. We just ask that by your spirit you would be guiding my words, and that the words that you have for each one of us would stick and go deep. Let me pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So on a January evening in 1914, off the coast of Virginia, While it was making its overnight voyage from New York to Norfolk, the SS Monroe was struck by a merchant vessel called the Nantucket. That night, the Monroe sank, and 41 people, passengers and crew, lost their lives. Now, in his book, You Are What You Love, James K.A. Smith reflects on the congregational hearing that followed later on that year. And he does so because the story is a story that has significant implications for what it means to be a disciple. Now, as you would expect, the captain of the Nantucket, the ship that struck the Monroe, his name was Osmond Barry, and he was the one who was facing charges. But something very interesting happened during the cross examination of the Monroe's captain, whose name was Edward Johnson, that cast some different light on the investigation. So Johnson acknowledged that the steering compass that he used to navigate the Monroe was two degrees <laughs> off from the standard magnetic compass. And moreover, he insisted that such a compass was sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was, in fact, common practice for other captains to use compasses that were similarly misaligned. Now, in the end, it was decided that this misaligned compass was a contributing factor to the sinking because the Monroe in the fog was off course and not where it was supposed to be. And because of that, and some other factors as well, on the Nantucket side, 41 people lost their lives. Now, an interesting story for sure, tragic, but what does it have to do with being a disciple? So in his book, James Smith Suggests that much like a compass, our hearts point our lives towards the things that we love, and then we pursue them. And in that pursuit, those things shape us in terms of who we are and who we are becoming. And so, if as God's people we want to become more like Christ, then God needs to be our true north. And we must be regularly recalibrating our hearts. Johnson admitted that in the two years he had been the captain of the Monroe, he had never had his compass recalibrated. We need to recalibrate our hearts so that our hearts are directed towards God and are in tune with his priorities. The book of Proverbs puts it this way, above all, guard your heart for everything you do Flows from it. Now, as a church family, we've just come off a series on the book of Colossians, which was mentioned earlier. And as we walk through the book, we saw that the early church found itself in a society that was shaped by the dominating power of Rome. And in a culture where people cried out, Caesar is Lord, the church had a countercultural message, which was, Jesus is Lord, and that all truth and hope and peace and identity comes from him. And these weren't just a set of private beliefs that the people had. But for the early church, they were convictions that shaped their lives in a very different direction than the society around them. Now we, in the midst of our cultural context here, living in Halton, in North America, in 2019. We don't live in Rome, in the Roman Empire. But we were called to reflect as we went through the Colossian series on what were the dominating powers in our time, the things that seek our allegiance and want our hearts to pursue. And there were a number of things that were raised, individualism, consumerism, the love of money, which is linked, I guess, the power and violence, pleasure-seeking, these are some of the things that got mentioned. And during the panel discussion last Sunday that was here, John Francis sort of summed up all of these under the umbrella of the false god of self. Because the spirit of our age asserts that meaning is found through the exercise of freedom and self-expression and pleasurable experiences. This is the cry of our time. And moreover, our cultural narrative tells us that desire, choice, identity comes and emerges from within. We live in a time that tells us to follow your heart. Meanwhile, the scripture reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And beyond cure, too, and desperately wicked, who can know it? Very different messages and things we need to be pondering and paying attention to. Because our hearts are very easily dislodged or misaligned from true north. So thinking back to Edward Johnson and his compass, we must face the reality that our hearts can be tempted and distracted by lesser things than God. Now, I was thinking about this and trying to think about how we could visualize it, and I thought that maybe it would be good to do it in a sort of mathematical kind of way, except that I'm not very good at math. Uh, in fact, I'm not, yeah, I had to drop out of, like, grade 12, grade 13, actually, back in the day. Um, calculus in, like, April, after taking the first because I was like, I have no idea what's happening in this class. I'm just going to fail. So um, I called a friend, though. I had a friend who's a math teacher, and he helped me, and we came out. He Led me to, well, uh, he actually did all the work, and I just, like, downloaded it. But um, off, a, <laughs> off a website that does, like, geometry and stuff, like, pretty great, I guess, if you like that kind of thing. Now, this isn't that exciting, but I'm calling it two degrees of separation, which is not the same as six degrees of separation, which is about, like, cultural connect uh, your social connections. Or that thing about Kevin Bacon in terms of the movies you can find that he's in. But anyway, so two degrees of separation. So imagine that the bottom line here is... Uh, what it would look like if we were living true north, in God's fully aligned with God's heart, with God's ways, God's priorities, if we were living that way. Now the line above it, the blue line, is imagine your life. And just imagine or my life, and our life being just in some degree. Two degrees off, and two degrees is very subtle, which is what Edward Johnson's point was. Like You can navigate a ship with two degrees off, it's not that big a deal. And we we could live our life saying, well, I'm just kind of following God, but I'm two degrees off, just kind of doing my own thing here, because I like this. Um, As you can see at the beginning, the line is basically on top of the bottom line. But then subtly it begins to rise, and over time it um, becomes more and more off course. And in fact, if you were to kind of shoot this off you know, longer, it would, it would continue to widen. Which is sort of like a visual to show us that like, even though sometimes we subtly, the subtle things that we allow to throw us off course and we say it's not a big deal, over time, can become so. Now, what are the implications of that? I think the first is that if we, if we believe and understand that Jesus promises life to the full, Then, when we substitute other things—false gods or other types of things—and move our, or even our follow our own hearts in ways that we think are going to be good, um, we realize that we put ourselves off course and we're missing out on what God has for us. Now, we've also all had relationships that were really significant at one point in our life, and then we realized that we kind of began to drift apart, and those relationships now you don't call, you don't see each other, or are not in contact anymore. And the same thing can happen with God, and we can often feel like God is distant, or God has left us, or God isn't active in our life, and we haven't maybe paid attention to the fact that we have been drifting, that God has stayed true, but we are off in a different direction. And last week, the panel talked about how our bold mandate, that was from the Colossians series, is to be people who image God in the world. That's what we're we're called to be. We're called to be God's people, and the world should be able to look in and see God's character as we live. But if we are off, even by 2%, and as that's growing, then the picture that we are giving to the world of who God is is not an accurate one. Now, I think, as I was thinking about this, I think we could put a third line if I had kept bugging my friend to keep adding things for me. Because we tried this in a bunch of different ways. At one point it was like if it was parallel and it was off, it was like a train track and all of a sudden it's too large and it's not gonna work either. But if you put a line beneath it doing the same thing, because I think sometimes we can get off in two different kinds of ways. And sometimes we can sit there and say, those people who aren't following God are wrong and they're off by 2% or they're off by 20% or they're off by whatever. But then we also have to ask ourselves too at times, how is my heart towards people? Am I being, am I judgmental? Am I, where am I, where's my heart? Is my heart the heart of Christ? Where God has, where Jesus kind of embodies his grace and truth. Are we embodying that too? And so we can be off in lots of different ways, and to wherever you're sitting, like that's not a question I can answer for you, but it's something to be thinking about and be pondering. And I was recently listening to a podcast um, where the host said that while most Western Christians would not affirm an explicit prosperity gospel, the idea that, you know, Financial blessing and physical well-being are always God's will for us. And if you just have enough faith, and if you maybe give enough money over here, God's going to bless you. That we would not explicitly affirm that by our lives, we implicitly live out a prosperity gospel. And I think that's just one example of the ways we can easily get off from who God is. It's not the only one. It's just an example. Um, And so I feel like the question is, recalibrating our hearts must begin with an honest response to this question. How have I, how have we tried to live without the presence of God? Where are we trying to do it on our own strength? Where are we trying to shut God out because we don't want him to speak to that part of who we are, what's going on in us? Where are we trying um, to live out of our own priorities or of the false gods of our time? And I feel like wrestling with this question naturally brings us into Lent. Because Lent is a ready-made season of self-examination. It's there in the church calendar as if God knew that we needed at times to recalibrate our hearts in a regular kind of rhythm. Maybe he does. And as we journey with Jesus towards the cross, we are given this chance to take stock of our relationship with God and to face the false gods that have a hold on us. Now, last Sunday on the panel, Paul Miller made reference to a podcast by Ruth Haley Barton called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And I'm just gonna throw my support behind the podcast as well, I think it's, I've listened to it for for quite some time and I find that there's a lot of wisdom uh, and insight uh, that she shares. But, so I would recommend it to you. And this current season is actually on Lent and it's a journey through Lent and it might be helpful to you uh, to listen to that if you have the space while you are contemplating the Lenten season and the false gods that often have a hold of us. So, I mean, typically what we do when it comes to Lent is we ask ourselves the question, oh, what am I going to give up for Lent this year? And maybe it's like coffee or like, you know, wine or soda or, you know, something. We come up with something and that is, that's is—that's a good question. It's a fine question. I mean, I'm give, there's something I'm giving up like that for Lent This as a way of doing that but in some ways that kind of brings about a heroic response look at me like I'm not having coffee this month or whatever and so it of becomes it could become something we try to do in our own strength but Ruth Haley Barton asks us to consider a couple deeper questions that Lent invites and so here's what they are how will i rep- oh, there we go how will i repent and return to god with all my heart. Or, or, and or perhaps, where in my life have I gotten away from God? Where in my life have I gotten away from God? And so, as we enter the season of Lent, what would it look like for you, for me, for us? focus on these questions, to take an honest examination, to do a recalibration of our hearts. And then, as we sit with that and as we allow God to speak to us, maybe as Barton kind of suggests in one of the podcast episodes, to consider choosing, specific, sorry, consider choosing spiritual practices that are uniquely suited to help us return to God in the places where we have strayed. That becomes the Lenten challenge or the Lenten invitation. To consider where we have drifted and strayed from God, and then to consider what spiritual practices might, might be uniquely suited to our specific situation for the places where we have strayed in our own journey. And obviously, it goes without saying that that will be different for each one of us. I can't be able to do a prescriptive. Uh, Here's what you need to do. That becomes an opportunity for you to reflect with Christ and to invite him to speak. But I will have some suggestions towards the end. Um, Now today we're starting a new series. It's gonna run through Lent and potentially past Lent, actually, too. But I'm not sure 100 percent about that, but you know, I may be saying the wrong thing. But anyway, it's called Broken and Becoming, Following the Disciples to the Cross. And what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be looking at Jesus, but through the eyes of the disciples. And we're gonna be noticing the ways in which the disciples seem to continually fail to understand what Jesus is doing and the nature of his mission and what God's kingdom is all about. They keep getting hung up by false ideas. They end up being two degrees off from true north or more at times. And as we pay attention to the disciples, I think what we will see is that they hold up a mirror to ourselves and that we are going to see a lot of the ways that we happen to miss the point of Jesus too. Now, as we dive into this, thinking about the disciples today, um, I want us to start, I want us to keep in mind a quote from Scott McKnight that I think is helpful for framing some things. So he says this, Wisdom is living in God's world in God's way. Wisdom is living in God's world and God's way. It's our life following the trajectory of that bottom uh, line in that great mathematical picture I showed you. Um, but he qualifies that and says this, and God's way is Christ. So if we want to understand what it looks like to, f- to live in line with where God is up to, we need to focus on Jesus, and we focus on Christ, we have to encounter the cross. The cross must be the central to any understanding of what living God's way looks like. The cross must be. And the cross redefines how we view all of life. It redefines how we understand power, how we understand leadership, how we understand... um, family, how we understand community, I understand life. It, the cross can speak to all these things. I don't have time, it's not what the sermon's about, so we're not going to talk about all those things. I'm going to give you one example, it's because it's a cultural world that our world, our, our, a word that our cultural environment kind of lives in and breathes and worships in lots of ways, and that's the word love. The cross must define how we understand what love is, And in 1 John 3.16, which I always find ironic that John 3.16 is the famous one, and then 1 John 3.16 says this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Again, even words like love, which our society and our culture will take, can often be several degrees off unless they are brought under the understanding of who God is, God's way, and that way is the cross. Now, the cross is looming over the story that we're going to dive into this morning. Because we're going to do one of those things where we start where, where they often do in the movies, where they start the movie with kind of a scene quite near the end of the story. And then the second scene is like three months earlier. And then you build back up. So we're going to start this morning in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to spend some time with the disciples. Now, this has long been one of my favorite stories in the Bible. For a bunch of reasons. I think in this story, what I really have appreciated over time is I really feel like here we see the weight and burden of Jesus' mission. It's beginning to weigh him down. as He's at the threshold, like really the night of the cross. We see him agonizing and struggling with his mission. But what we also see is the profound submission that he has to the will of God, the will of his father his willingness to go through with this plan. But we also catch a glimpse of the cost, I find, because we observe Jesus, the fear in Jesus. And it's not just the fear of the excruciating pain he's about to suffer in a physical manner. But I think on a deeper level, there is this this—the fear of what it's going to be like to take on the sin of the world. To be separated from the Father as a result of him bearing all of our sin. For God to kind of, eternity to be torn apart. And for God the Son to be alone without the Father's presence, which he's known for all eternity. There's a deep mystery here. And for me that has always been a significant uh, and kind of moving story in the Bible if we look at Christ's life. But this time as we read it, we're going to focus on the disciples. Jesus is always there. We can't get away from him, but we're going to try to focus as much as we can on the disciples. And so we're going to have the text up, and we're going, I'm going to read it. Hopefully this will work. Um, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, And began to be deeply troubled, distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell down to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. After three years of traveling with Jesus and at the very climax of his mission, and in fact, all of history has been crescendoing to this point, the disciples can't stay awake. Now, I'm sure there's nobody here who can relate to the idea of falling asleep when you're supposed to be praying. But I do imagine that every one of us has someone in their life or has had that person who when you sit down to watch a movie or a sporting event, inevitably falls asleep and then wakes up being like, did I miss anything? What happened? The disciples are missing the very culmination of their time with Christ. Not to mention, just on a human level, the opportunity they would have had to give comfort and solace and strength to their rabbi, to their master, to their friend who was going through the the greatest trial of his life. Three times Jesus comes to shake them awake. Some of you maybe had that experience this morning trying to get your teenagers up for church. But in these attempts, Jesus also issues some pointed warnings. Three times he says to them, Keep watch. Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think Jesus knows that the disciples want to do better. He understands their embarrassment. They didn't know what to say to him. They can't believe they've fallen asleep. They feel like failures. Jesus has sympathy, I think, just one verse, literally Mark fourteen thirty-one, The one verse before the Gethsemane story, which starts in verse 32. As Jesus was telling Peter that he's going to betray him, Peter has this very big, um, you know, no you're not, no I'm not. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. All of them will never disown you. We're with you. We'll stick with you. And yet, here they are asleep in the garden. I mean, the Spirit was willing. This is the guy, they're, they're gung ho. They're willing to go. But in the garden, they're asleep. And what do we know? They're like, very soon they're going to flee and they're going to desert him and he's going to be alone. And before that, we know that Peter has a, has a sword and he's going to go and use that sword to f- defend Jesus. Now, I don't know much, but I think that Peter Peter was a fisherman and probably not a swordsman. And when he cuts off the guy's ear, I don't think he was trying to do something really like a fine ear shot, like, like, look at how great I am as a sword. I think he was going for the head, and he missed. Even Peter has still, he's off. He's two degrees off or more. He doesn't get what Jesus is doing. The disciples don't get it, and they flee. The flesh is weak. And as we sit here this morning, I'm confident in saying that the Spirit is willing. It is my desire. I believe the best that it is your desire, that it is our church's desire, to be aligned with God and His priorities. I believe that is true of us. That's what we want for our lives. And yet, as we sit here with the question Ruth Haley Barton gives us for Lent, Where in my life have I gotten away from God? I am aware, at least for myself, of the ways that I have settled for spiritual mediocrity and that there are false gods that have more of an allegiance of my heart than I would care to admit. And I imagine that the same is true for you and for all of us. The flesh is weak. Keep watch, is Jesus' exhortation. Stay awake. Be alert. He knows how easy it is for us to drift, even a mere two degrees, and find ourselves off course and far from where we intended to be. The Apostle Paul talks about this in his own tongue-twisting type of way in Romans chapter 7, where he says... For, what I do not, I, for I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. That was Paul wrestling with the same idea. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to be alert. In the introduction to his book, In the Name of Jesus, Henry Nowen puts it. He comes at it from a kind of different angle, and he says this: As I entered into my 50s and was able to realize the unlikelihood of doubling my years, I came face to face with a simple question: To becoming older, bring me closer to Jesus. I think we sometimes think. I know from the youth I've talked to over the years that there's this. I'm young. It's time to be free and have fun. But when I get older, I'll really focus on that God stuff. And yet I was talking to Catherine, and Catherine thinks it's the reverse, where when she was young, she was excited, and she pursued her faith, and as we get older, the things of life happen to us, and we begin to miss out, and God becomes less and less a priority in the midst of all the other things. It's a powerful question. Did getting older bring me closer to Jesus? Now this week as I was reading Gethsemane, I did some reading around the story in the book of Mark just to kind of have the context. And I noticed, I was really struck by the way that Jesus' words in Gethsemane actually echo something he'd already said just one chapter earlier when he was talking to his disciples about his second coming, his return. And here's what he says there. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If you come suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping, What I say to you, I say to everyone watch. These are the words that Jesus uses in the garden. And so the call to to watch and be alert is not just a call for the disciples in Gethsemane, but it's for everyone who wants to follow Jesus until he returns. So that includes us. Be alert, keep watch, stay awake. Guard your heart. Now, each week as we journey through this series, we're going to be suggesting some spiritual practices that could prove to be fruitful for you to experiment with during the week or potentially through all of Lent. And as I said before this morning, my goal is not to be prescriptive because we're all in different spots. And so I want to invite us like Ruth Haley Barton did to consider choosing spiritual practices that are uniquely suited to help us return to God in the places where we have strayed. That's a question only you can ask or answer for yourself along with God. You and God need to talk about that. But before I suggest some possibilities, I do want to say two things. So the first is that We've been talking today a little bit about, I've been using this imagery of two degrees off. Um, and that's subtle. And that's sort of about, you know, the things, the forces in our society that kind of war against our hearts and kind of call for allegiance that we can easily kind of fall into. But there are some things that we know are like 20, 30, 40, even 90 degrees like, off, right? And some of those things may be in our lives. And here I'm thinking about like sinful behaviors, addictions, et cetera. Those are things that need to be faced. You need to deal with those things in your life. Don't let them fester and grow. They can destroy a soul and destroy a life. But you don't have to do those things, deal with those things alone either. Find someone who you know or you trust or call the church. Um, the pastoral staff are here. But Lent is a time to, be, to focus and to know where we're at and to allow God to move. And so if you find yourself and over your head and I'm not two degrees off I am I'm sailing far from shore then find someone to talk to and have accountability and work that through. The second thing is that I wanted to kind of give you a question that I think I've given you a lot of questions to ponder and so maybe there's too many and I apologize but they're kind of all on the same theme but um, when we think about the disciples experience in Gethsemane consider this What keeps me from being alert to what God is doing in and around me and then joining him in it? How are you not alert to the things of God? How have you been dulled? How are you sailing slightly off? And maybe you don't even know it, but as you bring it to God and ask, you discover. I think that's important. What is keeping us from being alert to what God is doing? It could be comfort. It could just be the desire to just relax after a long day. You know, it could be many things for us. I know it's some of those things for me. Before I suggest some practices, I want to pray because I want to invite God's Spirit to be speaking to you as these ideas come up. So God, I just want to... Uh, Invite you to speak to us this morning. Um, you know our hearts. You know our tendency to drift, to be off by even two degrees, to pursue false gods that have a hold of us and a grip of us. God, may, we want our true north to be you. We want to uh, align our hearts and pursue you wholeheartedly. So God, as we look at list us some practices this morning, God, I pray that you would be speaking to each individually here where we're at. And there may be things that spark uh, something in us. And God, I pray that we would pay attention and know what you're calling each one of us to do and how we should respond as your people sitting here this morning. Amen. So this is not like an exhaustive list of practices. And you could think, and we're not going to have time, I'm not going to have time to like go through all these practices and in really lots of depth. This is going to be kind of like a broad level thought, but here we go. Prayer. Watch and pray was Jesus' exact commands to the disciples. And so part of keeping watch and being alert is to be prayerful people. And so how could you build more prayer into your life this week? What would that look like? Would you get up earlier? Would you think about experimenting with different types of prayer? Maybe the prayer of examine, where you examine your day and ask God to reveal Walk, walk through your day and ask God to reveal where, he was, where you felt his presence or where you felt maybe he was absent and, and kind of talk to God about those things. Listening prayer. Listening, allowing God to speak to you and direct you, especially as you're thinking about the areas he wants you to realign, get back on course with. So prayer is one potential opportunity for you. Fasting. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So often... Our off-coarseness, if that's a word, uh, comes from the fact that we uh, indulge in other things. Um, And so food may be that for some people, but there's lots of, and a more broader thinking about what fasting is, thinking about fasting from the things that dull us, the things that just dull our hearts. That could be the entertainment we consume, and maybe how much of it we consume, or you know, our screens or our scroll through our Instagram or our Facebook feed. It's the things that dull us. And not that those things don't have a place in our life, some place, but do they have too much of a place? And do we need to take some time for them? Do we need to fast from them? Do we need to make some space from those things so that we can actually fill those things with God and invite God? Don't just, like, don't just do these things for no reason, but like, do them practically, like, with the purpose of then creating space in your life to focus on God. Reading, and I'm thinking here the scriptures, obviously reading God's word and filling our minds, letting it sink deep, but also maybe some spiritual reading, other types of reading, reading some of the classics, picking up in the name of Jesus or Augustine's confessions or whatever it might be, you know, whatever whatever you might find would be good for you, but to read and to have God speaking to you in that way, filling your mind, alerting yourself to the things of God. Thankfulness. Paying attention to the things you had to be thankful for. We have we live in a culture that can often be critical. Um, thankfulness can be a very powerful uh, tool against that. Keeping a list, thanking God for, it. and then maybe recognizing in your own blessing how you could be you could pass it along to other people, and putting that into practice. This week or this mo- or this month as we go through Lent. Simplicity maybe consumerism or having things has occupied your heart and you know that that is really something that is just, you pursue. So maybe you decide to only buy what you need during Lent and see what that's like. And then with the money you save, maybe you can give some money to other people. Um, or maybe you wanna simplify your schedule so that you can create more time for God or for relationships or things that are gonna build you up. These are all just suggestions. Um, Link to simplicity is generosity. Again, to be alert to the blessings that you have and the needs of others, to be alert to where God is at work in the lives of people around you and to be calling you to be involved. And then the last thought is retreat, which might be hard to plan just for this week, but thinking about creating regular rhythms in our life where we can go and kind of just detach from the regular kind of the rat race as it is and spend time with God so that we can be recalibrated on a regular basis. And that might be something worth pursuing. And I haven't read this book, but I know Ruth Haley Barton just released a book called Invitation to Retreat that is about this that might be worth exploring. So I've tried to thread a lot of things here, and I hope that's making sense, but um, we live in a world that is filled with many false gods and the invitation to install ourselves on the throne of our life. But as we conclude, I want us to remember a few things. I feel like this quote is very significant, at least for me, that wisdom is living in God's world, in God's way, and God's way is Christ. And that is the cross. We need to discover what it means to be sacrificial with our lives, to lay down our lives for the sake of others. That is actually what it means, in a sense, to be evangelistic. Um, We need to focus on that. And so may we be alert to the movements of the crucified one in the world around us and in our own lives so that we can join him and be his image bearers to the world that needs that. And as we strive for this, may we be diligent in recalibrating our hearts on a regular basis, not just in Lent, so that our lives point towards Jesus, our true north, and we can follow in his steps. So finally, may we remember that Lent happens and ends in the the assurance of the cross and the empty tomb. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are loved, we are forgiven, and Jesus has already made the way. And so may we go forth in that hope as we allow God to speak into our lives, to kind of unveil the truth about our hearts and then to step into the things that God is calling us to. Amen.